Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to Popcorn. I'm pleased that you've chose to listen to the program. I hope you enjoy it, and I also hope that you can find something uplifting or useful in it. That's part of my aim in producing the program. My hosting service at Anchor.fm keeps track of where my listeners are tuning in from. As of right now, it tells me I have listeners in the U.S., Canada, Japan, Germany, Ireland, the Netherlands, the U.K., Singapore, Russia, Indonesia, and Greece. Fantastic! Welcome all! Yokoso! Herlich willkommen! Feilte! Welcome! Dobro pojovalat! Selamat datang! Kalos irtate! Now, speaking of my aim in producing the program, I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. Why I've been putting together these episodes. I was recently talking to a friend about the program, and she pointed out to me that it wasn't entirely clear who my audience was to a random listener who stumbled onto the program. So I've made a few changes. The first is the new Instagram account. Instead of piggybacking on my personal account, there's now a dedicated account for the program under the username popcorn7092. I'm still working on figuring out exactly what should go here. Instagram is more of a visual medium than an audible one, but I know that it's been used to good effect by podcasts and other non-visual media. We'll see how that evolves over time. Next, I've put some serious effort into refining exactly what I want the program to be about. I've developed a new statement of purpose for myself. In the interest of complete transparency, it was largely based on a description I found online when I asked Google to define popular culture. This is what came up. The set of practices, beliefs, and objects that embody the most broadly shared meanings of a social system, including media objects, entertainment, and leisure, fashion and trends, and linguistic conventions, among other things. I'm not so much interested in fashion. Anyone who's ever met me in person will verify that, but I am curious about how we got to where we are in terms of literature, linguistics, language, and trends in entertainment and social culture, and I'm curious about how faith fits into the picture as well. Finally, one more little thing before I get into today's episode. I doubt if anyone listening will notice, but I'm kind of happy about it. I have a new microphone boom arm attachment. Until now, I'd been using a gaming headset with a microphone or recording episodes directly into my phone, transferring the files to the computer, converting them from MP4 into MP3 format, and then editing them. I got a new to me microphone a little while ago, and it's been great, but I had nothing to hold it up. And I was laying it on a stack of books or propping it up with this weird Greek Omega style wooden carving one of my kids made in woodshop at school. It didn't really make for good quality recordings, so I started saving up my pop bottle money for a new boom arm, and then last week it came in the mail. I'm pretty happy to have it because it means less stress on my neck and less worrying about proper placement of the microphone, better quality recordings, and best of all, it came with a pop filter. So here's hoping today's episode is the clearest it's ever been. The question of whence we draw our identity is one that will likely never be answered as a general rule, simply because different people find it in different places. 
Some find their identity in the things they do or love or consume. Others, like myself, find their identity in that which they worship. But it's surprising to think that no matter the different places and things in which different people may identify themselves, many of them express themselves linguistically in much the same way, regardless of what language they speak. When I was growing up, I had a gift and a thirst for language. I excelled in classes that involved language arts and orthography, which is just a fancy word for spelling. When I was in grade six, my teacher sat down with me and told me that he was no longer going to have me study spelling, which in my elementary school was a specific class like math or PE. We were regularly given lists of spelling words which we were required to memorize and then regurgitate on tests and quizzes. I never got any of them wrong. I'm not bragging, that's just what it is. My teacher had noticed that I never got any spelling words wrong. I just instinctively knew how to spell everything. It was a gift. Instead of spelling, my teacher had me focus independently on creative writing. And although I've never been published and don't write professionally as an adult, I still consider myself a writer. And that is all thanks to that teacher. When I was in high school and university, I continued to cultivate a love of language and communication. I was an English literature major, and while my work in my literature classes was unremarkable, I found other classes like linguistics, composition, and advanced grammar to be a total blast. Now I do realize how much of a nerd that makes me, and I claim that label loudly and proudly. Not only did I enjoy the linguistic aspects of studying English grammar, but I've also always gotten a kick out of studying other languages. I love the idea of language. I love the idea of communication through speech or other means. I loved learning about the parts of speech, about verb tenses, uh, nouns, clauses, subjects, and objects. I even loved learning other languages. I studied French in university and even took a year of Dutch which is my parents' mother tongue, although I didn't retain much of it, unfortunately. There's a story in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, about the Tower of Babel. A lot of people know of this story, even if they haven't grown up in religious homes or reading the Bible. It's one of those cultural fragments, like the story of Noah's Ark, that seems to find its way into many people's education regardless of background or belief system. For those of you who don't know the story, here's a quick summary. After the flood, the number of people in the world began to grow, but there was essentially no diversity in their language. The whole world had one language and a common speech. People began to settle in various places, and one of the places where they settled was called the Plain of Shinar. The scholars tell us that Shinar would have been the plain that eventually became Babylonia, or ancient Babylon. In the modern world, some archaeologists believe that it would have been physically located on the Persian Gulf, possibly where modern-day Iraq is. As a population, these people seem to have been possessed primarily of a singular imperative, not to see themselves scattered across the earth. So as the story goes, they took it upon themselves to build a huge tower that could essentially be used as a landmark. 
so that people could identify with and remain in a specific location without being dispersed. According to the text of Genesis, this was precisely what God didn't want of them. So he did something that made the people cease construction on the tower. He diversified their languages. Suddenly, people found that they couldn't work with each other because their modes of communication had abruptly evolved. The project had to be abandoned, and the people drifted into their individual linguistic groupings scattering across the world. When I was first learning this story, something unfortunate happened. Given a choice between teaching this story as a morality tale or as something else, my teachers all seemed to have gravitated to the theory that the story was one of punitive justice. The people wouldn't spread out and populate the world as they were told, so action was taken to ensure their compliance. Perhaps there is an element of this in the story, but the older I get, the more I believe that the story was not meant to be primarily about punitive justice at all. The purpose of the story is to tell about the development of language as a gift. Language is a thing of beauty. It's also an essential functional tool. It isn't something you choose to do or not do. Language is at the very core of who we are as human beings. All of life is about language, whether it be written or spoken, semiotics, symbological, body language, or the type of signing used by the deaf and hard of hearing community. Accordingly, it only makes sense that it is from there that we draw our identity. School did a relatively good job of training me in the use of language, but of course, we all have our aptitudes and our likes and dislikes. The fact that I did well in language-related subjects reflects partially on the system, but also on my own personality and tastes. A person who went to the same schools I did, who was educated under the same philosophies and studied the same subject materials, could not automatically be expected to turn out exactly as I did, if nothing else, chaos theory practically forbids it. And there were still things that were missed along the way, that things that fell between the cracks, such as the concepts of case and aspect. As I said, I did go above and beyond the basic requirements of reading and writing in school, but the concept of case wasn't taught to me in any of my English classes in high school, and it also wasn't taught in my university classes. Grammar, composition, advanced English grammar, history of the English language, advanced expository writing, not even in basic news writing. And it certainly didn't come up in any of my literature classes. It's something of a fluke, I guess. I can't really think of any other way of explaining it other than to speculate that every teacher I had must have assumed that every other teacher must have already taught those concepts. But I was today years old, as the kids like to say, when I really learned what case was. I knew it existed, I'd heard references to it in books, and characters in movies speak about it sometimes. But I always just kind of glossed over it, thinking it wasn't any more important than any of the other components of English usage that I was taught, like conjugation or tense. And maybe it's not, but it is as important, which is why I'm so surprised it was completely missed. Case is about the formation and the use of pronouns and other non-verb parts of speech according to their functions within a sentence. That's a fancy way of saying 
a pretty simple thing because most people know how to use case properly, even if they don't know what it is. They know what the correct use of the possessive case looks like. That's my dog. And they know what the incorrect use looks like. That's me dog, even if they can't explain why those examples are correct or incorrect. The same things are true of aspect, which wasn't taught to me specifically by that name, but was essentially absorbed through the process of studying tense. For example, instead of being taught the imperfective aspect when I was learning French, I was instead taught what was referred to as the imperfect tense, or l'imparfait, as it's called in French. This is a mode of construction which applies to situations conceived as existing continuously as time flows. I was helping him is a good example. It was further clarified for me as a student when more details were added to the example. I was helping him when the bell rang. These are the things that have always fascinated me about language. It's still technically possible to speak a language correctly and well without knowing what these things are. I think that it's at the heart of our instincts about communication. If I were to say to you, I think that I'm going to walk the dog, most people would know instinctively that the sentence is grammatically correct. But far fewer people would be able to point out that the sentence is an example of the subordinate clause being tensed in the present progressive aspect and active voice, and that the main clause uses the subjunctive mood. They just know that it's right. Just as they know that the sentence, I'm thinking that I'd be walking the dog, is somehow wrong, even if they couldn't necessarily point out why or in what way. Different languages have different types of case and aspect. Modern English basically has three cases, the subjective, the objective, and the possessive. This is fairly straightforward. It's only when we learn that other languages have much more extensive case systems that we start to wonder what those systems might look like. How much more extensive? Well, where English has three cases, it turns out that ancient Greek, for example, had five. Russian and Turkish each have six cases. Finnish has 15. And a language like Tsez, which is a language spoken in southwestern Dagestan in Russia, has 64 cases. So what's the point of all this? What am I getting at? It isn't specifically about case or aspect or about my education, what I was or was not taught in school. Those are just components, things that I find interesting that are parts of a larger whole. Things like case, tense, and aspect each evolved with a purpose, and that purpose is universal. What we say in any given language is an attempt to make someone else understand what we mean. Language isn't designed to muddle communication. If I say a specific thing with a specific tense mood and aspect, it's because I want you to understand exactly what I mean, to approximate as closely as possible what's going on inside my head. If that has to be translated into another language, then it serves the speaker to translate it as closely as possible using the right technical characteristic of the language so as to communicate best. It's in mutuality that we come closest together as human beings, which means that a pure and accurate understanding of language, the highest level of proficiency, 
is something that we should all work as hard as possible to achieve so that we can transcend differences and meet where we share common ground. Language is essentially unignorable, like theology. Everyone has some kind of a belief system that they cling to. Christians, atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, animists, nihilists, Sikhs, Zoroastrians, Pastafarians. You may believe in nothing at all, but then that is essentially your theology. And language is the same. Everybody has language. Philosophy of language might differ slightly from culture to culture, and many languages differ widely and dramatically from each other, but at their core, they all share a common purpose, whether their speakers realize it or not, to draw people together. This is what fascinates and thrills me about language. There is a higher purpose, and that higher purpose is unity. A threat of violence is useless if it's uttered in a language the victim doesn't speak. The one threatening violence means for the listener to understand. It does them no purpose otherwise. They might as well not be speaking at all. Even in a situation in which an antagonist doesn't try to communicate the threat of violence via the spoken word, they will communicate using body language. Violence is a form of communication. The fact that it is not a verbal form doesn't make it any less powerful, nor does the fact that it is collectively and almost universally negative. All language has inherent purpose and meaning. There's no language without these things. And the moment we understand this to be true is the moment when we begin to understand the transcendent value of language. There is no physical proof that God exists, but I still believe that he does. I make a distinction between proof and evidence of the existence of God, and I believe that language is evidence that God exists. Language is a facilitation of love. There's no love possible without language, and to me, love is the evidence of God. According to Enlightenment philosopher Antoine Arnaud, language is a social fact which arises from social interaction. If that's true, then it seems to me that language's highest purpose is relationship. There's a reason why a lack of communication is often a symptom of broken relationships. A husband who doesn't understand his wife or a brother estranged from a sister is a broken language relationship. People not talking to each other, nations at war, divorce, generational feuds. All of these are examples of dysfunctional or non-functional relationships. Relationships distorted because of a lack of communication, a perversion not just of language but of the purpose of language. You can have nothing without language. For the empiricists who believe that science is the highest end of mankind, I can only say that science is nothing without language. And for those who, like myself, believe that love is the highest end of mankind, I can tell you that you're right, but also that there's no love without language. From the most primitive of cave paintings to the articulation of chaos theory, quantum physics, mathematics, or cosmology, you can have nothing without language.
There's a joke that's been circulating for quite a few years, often incorrectly attributed variously to Benjamin Franklin, Martin Luther, and, and others. The joke is that beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. I would love nothing more than to believe that this is true. The fact that it's not true will never detract from my love of beer. But there's an element of truth in the joke, so I'm going to close today's episode by brazenly commandeering the joke and unapologetically repurposing it for my own ends. Language, not beer, is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode as much as I enjoyed writing it. If you did, or especially if you didn't, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at sdrost01 at gmail.com, or you could look me up on Facebook or Twitter. Also, don't forget the new Instagram account, popcorn7092. Until next time, then.